We're zeroing in on these first seven verses here today, and and chapters four and five are um, they're they're connected, and so we want to uh, bridge the gap there between the chapters. We pick up here with John describing uh, what he saw as he was taken up to the very throne room of God. And there, as we saw in chapter four, John saw God uh, sitting upon a throne uh, clothed in brilliant light. Uh, We saw that there were 24 thrones that surrounded God's throne and upon them sat 24 elders. We saw that there uh, was the presence of the spirit. The seven spirits of God are there speaking of the fullness of the spirit. We saw that there were four magnificent creatures who are leading in the worship of him sitting on the throne. And we saw that in their uh, leading of the worship, they cry out, holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. And so now that brings us to the next thing that uh, is noted here. John tells us in chapter five, verse one, and I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne, a scroll written inside and on the back sealed with seven seals. And so John sees now in in the hand of God, there is this scroll. Now, a seven sealed scroll in Roman times often uh, was a will. It was a will. And if, if we think of it in those terms, the scroll seems to be uh, that very thing. It, it is, it's the declared uh, will of, of the Father. And it contains both uh, God's will regarding time and eternity and the instructions on how his will is to be executed. Now, some have referred to um, this scroll as uh, rather than a will, or, or maybe it, it, they kind of are combined together. Some have thought of it as uh, it's the title deed to the earth. And I would say that that is, is partially true, but it's more than the title deed to the earth, because what's going to happen is the scroll is, is uh, unrolled as the various seals are broken is going to take us out beyond the earth. It's really, uh, you know, if it is a title deed, it's a title deed to the, to the universe, even, even so it go, goes beyond the earth. But looking at it as a, a will or as the title deed, the thing that John sees is that there's no one worthy to open it. So the strong angel proclaims with a loud voice, who is worthy uh, to open the scroll and to loose its seals? And no one anywhere in the universe is found worthy. There's no angel, no prophet, no priest, no saint. Uh, No one is found worthy to open this scroll. And this causes John to weep much it says here in verse four. So I wept much. The, the idea here is inconsolable grief. So John is, is uh, inconsolable. And you can understand 
why he's that way if, if we understand what the significance of no one being able to take the scroll. What it's essentially uh, talking about is that there's, there's no one to implement the will of God back into the universe. So in John's mind, this is the worst uh, possible situation imaginable that everything is destined to go on under the will of men and devils. And it's just uh, repeated cycles of history over and over and over again. That would indeed cause uh, great grief. That would be really hard to bear if we uh, had to just accept the fact that the world is, is always going to be the way that it is. It's always going to uh, go from, from bad to worse, and, and it's just going to get worse and worse and worse as time goes on. That would be indeed something that would be so tragic. But that's what John is sensing at, at this moment, evidently. So this inconsolable grief. But, verse 5 tells us, one of the elders said to him, do not weep. Do not weep. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah has prevailed to open the scroll and to loose its seven seals. So, there is hope. There is good news. John is now uh, directed to put his attention upon this one that the elder refers to as the lion of the tribe of Judah. Now, I said this before, and this is, um, again, uh, just pointing out what I've talked about in the past, is how the book of Revelation, it really ties the whole Bible together. That's the amazing thing to me about the book of Revelation. It brings all of these, these different things together like no other book does. And, and right here is an example of that because right here we're reaching all the way back to the time of Jacob. And Jacob, uh, he's, he's on his deathbed. His sons are brought before, them, or before him and he blesses each one of them and he pronounces sort of a, a prophetic word over them. And he says this regarding his son Judah. He said, Judah, you are he whom your brothers will praise. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's children shall bow down to you. And then it says this, Judah is, is a young lion. He bows down. He lies down as a lion and as a lion who shall rouse him. So uh, Jacob prophesies this centuries earlier. And there's no reference after this. There, of course, Judah does become the dominant um, tribe. Uh, the kings, beginning with uh, David, come from uh, the, the family of Judah. And ultimately, Jesus would come from that Davidic line. Jesus uh, being himself from uh, the tribe of Judah. But, but making the connection with the, the lion, referring to him as the lion of the tribe of Judah, this is the first time that this occurs. But like I said, it's amazing how you, you're just reconnecting back with these ancient prophecies. And that's what the book of Revelation does. Uh, you know, whether you know this or not, for much of the history of the church, uh, there's been the dominant idea that 
Israel had its time as the people of God. They forfeited that by rejecting the Messiah. So their day is past, and now all of those, those promises are going to be fulfilled uh, through the church. And so apart from the apostolic age, the apostles didn't believe that, uh, but, but for many, many centuries after the apostolic period, that has pretty much been the mentality in, in the larger church. And the book of Revelation throws a wrench into that thinking. Uh, over and over and over again, because it just brings us right back, connects us right back to all of those ancient promises and back to uh, the people of Israel, the children of Israel. So much of the book of Revelation from this point forward, especially as we get into chapter six, you know, the, the real focus there is going to be on Israel and on God's uh, bringing them finally to the place of embracing the Messiah. That's to a large degree what the book of Revelation is dealing with. But I just find it fascinating that uh, right here, as the, this elder is consoling John, he, he points him back to that ancient prophecy, he refers to Jesus as the lion of the tribe of Judah. He also refers to him as the root of David. So connecting him back to Judah, the messianic promise there. I, I read to you from uh, Genesis 49, verses eight and nine. But if you go into the 10th verse, it says that the lawgiver, a lawgiver will not depart from Judah. Um, the scepter will not depart from Judah, nor a lawgiver from uh, between his feet until the Shiloh come and unto him will be the gathering of all the nations. So Shiloh is the, the ancient rabbis believe that that was a, a reference to the Messiah. And we would agree with them on that. So it's, it's this messianic passage. And now here, the, um, the elder speaking to John is tying all of this together. He's the lion of the tribe of Judah. He's the root of David. Later on in the book of Revelation, toward the end of the book, uh, Jesus refers to himself as both the root and the offspring of David. He is both. He's the root in the sense that he is God. And as God, he brought David into existence and gave him his throne, but he's also the offspring of David because he is, according to his human nature, he is the son of David. And so it says here concerning him, the line of the tribe of Judah, he has prevailed to open the scroll and to loose its seals. So there is hope. God has a plan. His will is going to be brought to pass. Jesus is the executor of God's will. He's going to put it into uh, action, the will of God. So now he says to John, behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah has prevailed to open the scroll and loose his heels. And I looked and behold, so John looks in the direction, apparently the, the elder is pointing in a direction. So I looked and behold, in the midst of the throne and of the four living creatures and in the midst of the elders stood a lamb as though it had been slain. So you see, it's an interesting uh, contrast here. The, the elder says the lion of the tribe of Judah, John looks to see, uh, presumably he's looking to see a lion, but what does he see? He sees rather than a lion, he sees a lamb. He sees a lamb as it had been slain. Now, whenever we hear of Jesus as the lamb. 
we need to remember that the reference is primarily to his sacrifice rather than to his demeanor. Now, I'm not saying that it doesn't have any uh, reference to his demeanor. A lamb is meek, a lamb is mild, a lamb is patient, uh, those kinds of things. And, and of course, Jesus was those things as well. But the primary reference when we're talking about Jesus as the lamb is the sacrificial aspect. When John the Baptist was pointing his followers toward uh, Jesus as the one that they were to now follow, he said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So he sees Jesus in a, in a sacrificial uh, context. And so John looks, and this is what he sees. He sees a lamb as though it had been slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God that go out into all the earth. So, of course, in the book of Revelation, you have a lot of symbolism. In the prophetic books, you have symbolism. Uh, all through the Old Testament, especially, we find it here as well. The horn is a reference to power. The horn is a reference to power. And then the eyes would be a reference to knowledge. You see, you see everything. So this is saying concerning the lamb that was slain that he has all power and he has all knowledge. He has the fullness of the spirit. But the thing that is very interesting is that he sees him as a lamb that was slain. And for this reason, and based on this passage, many people believe that our first glimpse of Jesus in heaven will be uh, to see him still bearing the marks of his suffering. That when we first see him, this is how we'll see him. We'll see him still bearing the marks of his suffering. And I think that very well could be the case. We know that when Jesus rose from the dead, although his body was a glorified body, we know it was the same body because it had the marks. You remember uh, when Jesus said to Thomas, he said, Thomas, put your, your hand in my hand and feel my wound. Put your hand in my side and see where the spear went in and do not be unbelieving, but believing. So Jesus rises from the dead he has a glorified body, but it's still bearing the wounds of his suffering. And it seems like, because of what John says here, that that very well might be the case in the future. That this will be the first glimpse that we will have of Jesus. And it, and it very well could be that he will bear those marks uh, long into his reign. Now, some people have suggested that Jesus is going to bear the marks of the crucifixion throughout the rest of eternity. And that could be true. We don't know for sure, but I would, I would think myself that he will at least bear them through the, the millennial reign, that time when he reigns in Jerusalem as a reminder to the nation of Israel and as a reminder for everybody who's born during that period that our king is also our savior. Our king is the one who loved us so much that he gave himself for us. And of course, when we get to heaven. And, and this whole scene that we're describing here is a scene that we are going to be there observing as well. And so it seems like our first view of Jesus will be to see him still bearing 
the wounds that he uh, received in his sacrifice for us. Now, I want to look at these two images of Jesus here today. As uh, on the one hand, he's, he's the lamb, and on the other hand, he's the lion. And I want to um, apply that to us. And I had a couple of quotes that I wanted to transition with that I put in my notes, and then I lost them. But I have them on my phone, so... <laughs> I'm going to read off my phone here. I had a kind of a crisis this morning. I was talking to a dear friend after first service, and I'd, she just got kind of excited and threw her cup of coffee all over me. And so uh, <laughs> it was an accident, but so I, I had to get my shirt cleaned, and then I, I was trying to mess with my notes after that, so it got kind of chaotic. But uh, all of that aside, as, as we make this transition, but uh, I want to quote, from uh, two different writers, from uh, Jonathan Edwards back in the 1700s and then uh, from Tim Keller as well, talking about just this, this picture here, these, these two different pictures. Uh, Edwards said this, he said, the lion excels in strength and in the majesty of his appearance and voice. The lamb excels in meekness and patience. And then he said, but we see that Christ is in the text compared to both because the diverse excellencies of both wonderfully meet in him. There is in Jesus Christ a conjunction of such really diverse excellencies as otherwise would have seemed to us utterly incompatible in the same subject. Yeah, you don't think of a, of a lion and a lamb, you know, the same the same person being both, but that's the picture that we have here of Jesus. And I, I think commenting on this same picture, uh, Tim Keller said this, he said, in Jesus, we find infinite majesty, yet complete humility, perfect justice, yet boundless grace, absolute sovereignty, yet utter submission, all sufficiency in himself, yet entire trust and dependence on God. So we, we see these two pictures of Jesus. And now I want, to, I want us to look at how this is applicable to us. Now this, of course, the, the larger application from the text, this is universal, the application is. But I want to apply it to us right now today. So as we think of a lamb, we think of the lamb, first of all, as a willing substitute, as a willing substitute, the substitute for, as we think of Jesus as the lamb, rather, we think of him as a willing substitute, which tells us of his love, his mercy, and his grace. We need to remember that Jesus was not forced to sacrifice his life for us. He chose to do it. It wasn't imposed upon him against his will. He willingly did this. He said, no one takes my life from me. I lay it down of myself. He also said that the greatest demonstration of love for another was to give one's life for someone else. Greater love has no one than this than to lay down one's life for his friends. He said to his disciples, and he said, you are my friends. 
And so the first thing that I want us to see is that his love and his mercy and grace are shown to us through him giving himself as a willing sacrifice. If you doubt God's love, if you wonder whether or not he has mercy, if your concern may be that you've exhausted his grace, you haven't. He loves you. He loves me. He loves us. How do we know? We know because he willingly laid down his life for us. That's what he did. He willingly laid down his life for us. And you know, Paul reminds us in Romans that he did this not when we were his friends, but he did this when we were his enemies. This, and this is the great demonstration of God's love, according to Paul. God demonstrated his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. So it was while we were in that that state of revolt toward him that he died for us. If, if that's the case, how much more is his love uh, abundant toward us who are now his people, who are now his children? So his love for us, his mercy for us, his grace for us, that we are reminded of as we think of him as uh, the sacrificial lamb. But secondly, the lamb was the atoning sacrifice, or it was through the blood of the lamb that sins were cleansed and washed away. And so with us as well, the blood of Jesus Christ, God's son, cleanses us from all sin. You know, this is not just a one-time event. We're not just cleansed once. Many, many people think this, believe it or not. Many people ask the question, well, okay, what happens when I sin after I've been forgiven? So I come to Jesus, my sins are, are forgiven, my sins are cleansed, but then inevitably I, I, I sin again. So what happens then? Well, the Roman Catholic Church tried to answer this, and they said, well, you know, Jesus paid for the sins that you committed before you came to him, but the sins that you commit after you come to him, you have to pay for them, and that's why you need to go to a place called purgatory. So that, that's really why purgatory exists in, in Catholic uh, theology, because for these Roman Catholic theologians, they, they don't see the blood of Jesus as uh, covering all sin, past, present, and future, they see it as just taking care of the sin that you know you committed prior to coming to Him, and so you've you've got to have this time of purging from your sin because you can't go into heaven if you have sin, and so it's got to be purged. And so their solution is purgatory, which is the the flames. It's fire. It's purging through fire, sin. But you know, honestly, they came up with such an idea because they didn't understand the gospel. If you understand the gospel, if you understand what the shedding of the blood of Jesus really did, then you know that there's no, not only is there no need for purgatory, purgatory would not do any good in the first place because sins are never burned away by fire. Sins can only be atoned for by blood. And Jesus as the sacrificial lamb, he's, it's, it's through his blood 
And when John tells us, the same one who's writing this revelation uh, in his first letter as he's writing, when he tells us that the blood of Jesus Christ, God's son, cleanses us from all sin, he put that in a continual tense. The blood of Jesus Christ, God's son, is continually washing you from sin. That's the wonderful truth. That blood of Jesus that was there to initially forgive our sins and to wash us and cleanse us and bring us into the covenant relationship with God, that, that blood is still cleansing us today. And, you know, of course, we all, throughout the days of our lives, we, we sin, don't we? We don't sin intentionally necessarily, but we think the wrong thing. We feel the wrong thing. We get upset. We, you know, we, we sin. If it were not for the blood of Jesus that was constantly cleansing us from that sin, we would have a problem in communion with God. But because his blood is there cleansing us constantly, we have that continual uh, access and fellowship with him. And then when I do sin willfully, what do I do then? Well, if we confess our sin, he's faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us. So you see, when we think of Jesus as the lamb, these are the things that we need to think of. His love, his mercy, his grace, and his sacrifice that continues to cleanse us from our sin. But then we have the picture of him as the lion. And again, in the, in the bigger context of the book, as the lion, he's, he's conquering. You know, I think it's interesting that in, um, you know, in, in almost every culture, lions... To this very day, lions are kind of considered the king of the beast, aren't they? They are the, the most majestic of, of, of the animal kingdom. And uh, when, you, when you look at, at Revelation, you know, Jesus is, as the lion, what he's being pictured as the, is as the one who conquers, the one who prevails, the one who overpowers all of his enemies. I think it's interesting because one of the enemies that we're going to come across here uh, pretty soon is the dragon, that great dragon, that serpent of old, the devil and Satan, but the lion of the tribe of Judah, he prevails against him as well. So we see as he's being presented as a lion, who's going to prevail. He's going to open these seals. These seals are the judgment of God that's coming upon the earth uh, to prepare the earth for God's kingdom to be established. But as we think of Jesus as the lion of the tribe of Judah, think of him as, first of all, your defender. He defends us. And if God is for us, who can be against us? We are assaulted. We are attacked. The enemy is going about seeking whom he may devour. But our champion our conqueror, the lion of the tribe of Judah, he defends us. But not only does he defend us, he also is on the offensive and he is going forth to conquer and to overpower all of the enemies of God. To overpower all of the enemies of God, to overpower your enemies and my enemies because we're the children of God. You know, this... This text here has deep significance for me personally because this passage spoke to me at a, at a time of crisis in my family uh, in, in such a way 
that it, it just forever settled the, the anxiety that, that I had in my heart. And what happened is, um, I don't know how long ago it was, so seven, eight years ago, something like that. Um, I was actually teaching through the book of Revelation here on Saturday night. And we were living through a, a really challenging time in our family. And uh, we were in a crisis uh, with one of our children who had just gotten into all kinds of trouble, all kinds of um, destructive behavior and so forth. And, and it was just a, such a hard time. You know, people have asked me over the years, have you ever, uh, have you ever wanted to quit the ministry? And I said, no. I've never wanted to quit the ministry. I've never been, you know, so discouraged about ministry that I felt like I, I, I got to get out or I've never had that. But I, I have said since I said, you know, but there was a season where I didn't really want to quit, quit the ministry, but I was so grief stricken and so heartbroken. It was hard to just go on day to day and minister. And it was during that time. And I'll never forget this moment. I was preparing to teach this passage right here. And I was sitting there with my Bible opened and there was an incident I think that had occurred that day that just added, you know, to the, the grief of the whole situation. And I sat there literally weeping. I, I couldn't compose myself to even take the time to, to focus and, and study so I could teach the passage. And, and as I just sat there in this deep grief and, and, weeping and my Bible's open in my lap and, and I'm just, you know, staring at the text, not really connecting with anything it's saying, but all of a sudden, you know how when your eyes are full of tears, everything's blurry. That was my, that was my vision. But all of a sudden my vision cleared up and my eyes were focused on these words, do not weep. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah has prevailed. And that very second, it, that very second, God spoke to me and said, I have prevailed. I will win this battle. And, you know, it was such a, it was definitely a, a great spiritual battle. But it, but it just, at that minute, I received the, the peace, the strength, the grace, everything I needed to just do what I had to do because God gave me that word. And that's what I'm talking about here. When we think of the Lord, he is going to overpower all of our foes. He will prevail. He will be the victor. And maybe you today, like I was then, maybe you find yourself being overpowered by something. Maybe there's something that has just caused such grief in your life. Maybe, that, maybe there's something that just literally causes you in your personal and private time to, to, to weep inconsolably before God. Know this, the lion of the tribe of Judah has prevailed. The Lord is the victor. He's going to get the victory and he wants us to trust in that. Maybe it is a marital crisis. Maybe it is a family crisis. 
Maybe it is a health crisis or a financial crisis, or maybe it's a sin crisis. Maybe you or maybe someone else has has been overtaken by sin. And you see that and you just, it, it just seems, the situation seems really impossible. And that's where, that's where John was. That's why he was weeping uh, convulsively because it just seemed like this is an endless situation. It's never going to be resolved. The world's going to go on and on and on forever under the will of man. But the elder says, no, don't weep. There is an answer. There is a solution. The the answer, the solution is the lion of the tribe of Judah. He has prevailed and he will prevail in our lives. And we need to believe that we need to just lay hold of that. We need to, uh, with John, just you know, on, on many occasions and in many of these kinds of circumstances, what we really need to do is we just need to fix our eyes on the line of the tribe of Judah and just know, you know what? Jesus is going to prevail in this. He's going to win. He's going to overpower all of our foes. He's going to overpower all of the enemy. He's going to be the victor. And that is the beautiful thing that this whole book is reminding us of. You know, there's many um, aspects to the book of Revelation. There are many prophecies and there are many things that are very uh, detailed for us about what is coming in the future. And all of those things are incredibly intriguing and they're, they're very interesting and all of that. Um, but you know, the overarching word of Revelation is this. God wins in the end. That's the big message of the book of Revelation. And so as, as, we, as we journey through the book of Revelation, and, and I want to encourage you to do this. I'm, I'm doing this myself. I'm just reading this book all the way as we're teaching it, however long it's going to take us to get through. I'm just reading it myself over and over and over again. Not apart from even the studying part of it. I'm studying it, but then I'm just reading it. But I'll tell you, every time I'm reading it, I'm just, it's just so reassuring. It's so comforting. I mean, let's face it. You look around at the world and man, it's a cause for weeping, isn't it? It's a cause for uh, lamentation. So many things that we see in, in our world, so many evils, so many wrongs. So many horrific things happening. And oh, to think that, that, that there's no solution to that. Or that the only solutions are the ones that, that sinful men can come up with. But then to just be reminded over and over again. You know, I, I'm like anybody else. I, I, you can't get help but get caught up in the, the political thing and all of the stuff that's going on and all of the theories about who's going to win this and what's going to happen with that. And, you know, it's just the way it is, right? And that can be so um, overwhelming at times. It can be so uh, grievous. 
I'll tell you a good way to counter it. Read the book of Revelation. <laughs> just, pick up your, just pick up your Bible. Just keep this in mind. The lion of the tribe of Judah, he has prevailed. Notice what he said. He has prevailed. He's already prevailed. And you know, in the situation that I was describing a few moments ago with my own, the family crisis we went through, it was that word The line of the tribe of Judah has prevailed. And that was the word the Lord spoke to me. I've already prevailed. I've got this covered. I've got this taken care of. You know, it's just kind of a similar thing. Going back, thinking about, um, you know, the Lord oftentimes in the Old Testament uh, saying to his servants that... Um, the battle belongs to him. You remember he said that the battle, the battle belongs to the Lord and he will prevail. Know that today, the battle belongs to the Lord. The lion of the tribe of Judah has prevailed. And if it's your marriage or if it's your children or if it's your health or if it's whatever, some insurmountable thing that's just got you buried underneath it. Know that the lion of the tribe of Judah has prevailed. He has already prevailed. And it's just a matter of time before he brings to pass the victories that he's already accomplished. And and you will see it. You'll see it. Lord, thank you that these promises have a personal application. And we thank you for the bigger picture application, uh, the universal scope of what we're reading here. And Lord, we are so relieved and we're so blessed to know that there is one who's worthy to take the scroll and to loose the seals. There is one who will execute the will of God in the universe and that your will, that one perfect will will be the only will forever and ever in the future. Thank you for that. Lord, thank you as well that there is a personal application of these things. And so today, Lord, I just would pray for those who find themselves like John. They find themselves weeping over circumstances that seem to them just impossible to ever see a good outcome. Lord, remind them today that you have prevailed. Remind them today, Lord, that you will overcome. Thank you that you are faithful. Thank you, Lord, that you speak your word of power into our impossibilities and nothing is impossible with you. Lord, we just are so glad that that's true. And so, Lord, help. Whether it's sin, we thank you, Lord, that there's the sacrifice in your blood that's cleansing us consistently, constantly. If it's our foes, we thank you that you've already conquered them. And Lord, may we find ourselves 
just like we read here and just like it will be one day, literally realize for us, may we find ourselves now giving you glory and honor and praise because you are worthy. We thank you, Jesus. Amen. Amen. Let's stand together.